My name is Jeff DeVries. I teach at Iliana Christian High School. I've been there for a long time. Um, I have, over the years, talked about teaching reading quite a bit, and I don't, I don't have a reading certificate. I don't really uh, consider self, my, myself a, a true specialist, so that makes you want to find another reading for you, too. Um, but I have done a lot of research over the years, and um, found things that work, and enjoy sharing that. So what I want to talk about today is giving students a purpose in their reading, which sounds pretty straightforward, becomes a little bit trickier as we talk about it, you'll see as we go. Uh, but the easiest way to, to illustrate that um, is that I want to give you a sort of reading test. Now remember, because sometimes I've done a version of this talk before, and i got funny looks here, because uh, I'm going to tell you to read this room, and people are like, what are you talking about? I don't know, we read music, we read body language, you read all kinds of things. So I'm saying read the room. Okay? So that's your test right now. I'm going to ask questions in a minute. Look around, read this room. Something I'm focused on, something I'm marking up while I'm reading. 
I also know from, uh, I've been doing ACT coaching for years and years and years, and uh, how many kids tell me how tremendously helpful this is. That's a really slight shift in how they take a reading test and how much better they do. So you start from that point. You know, we're thinking about reading the room. Think about something like an ACT CT test. And we go, if we read with a sense of purpose, if we give our students a sense of purpose, they're going to read better. And so we could talk about that in very general terms, um, which is where we'll start, right? Uh, so don't do it like this, do it like this, right? Don't do things like, please read chapter one of your biology textbook for tomorrow. Yeah, reading through tomorrow. You can do that. It doesn't give them any sense of purpose. Or you could say, as you read chapter one, please identify the two stages of photosynthesis. Be prepared to explain what happens in each. Do that while you're reading. And have a purpose. And I approach that reading differently. Don't say, please read the excerpt from Into Thin Air for tomorrow, and you better read it carefully, there's going to be a quiz. Threaten them into to reading well. Some readers suggest John Krakauer may not be a reliable narrator. It is a thin air. Please read until the first moment he believes something he's saying is unreliable, or perhaps unreliable. Stop there, write a brief paragraph explaining why you think he's unreliable in that moment. Now my reading has purpose, and it's a whole lot easier for me as a student to do it. Um, can we race around the room? Because we're going to get into this in a little bit about disciplines you teach, um, because it does sort of make a difference. So, Bible. Bible. History. English. Bible. Sorry. English. English and science. Elementary. English. Pre-algebra, Bible, LA. Bible, English. English and science. A, B, science, social, history. Okay. Social science. Okay. Good. So we've got a little bit of a mix, which is good, because uh, you know the title uh, of this piece is about trying to read across different disciplines. Okay. And we'll get into that disciplinary uh, specific kind of stuff in a minute. These are a few more generic prompts. Uh, it says, you know, I could give you credit down here, they're all from a book called uh, Catch a Falling Reader. Um, but different ways to set purpose, sort of in a generic kind of way. Read until you get to the part where blank. And depending on the subject matter and, and what you're trying to achieve, you fill in the blank accordingly. I read to find out what happened when, like, you know, maybe it's a history text or a Bible text. Or read until you figure out the problem in the story. The problem for uh, American patriots, the problem for a character in a short story. The conflict. Read to the part where you find the solution to the problem. Instead, think about math and <laughs> more. Uh, where, where do you find the solution? Read to get to that part. 
put your finger in the page and close the book, but you discover blank, right, if you're reading it together in class. But again, I've got something I'm looking for specifically. Flip your book over when you reach the paragraph that describes blank, right, and you've got these different visual signals if you're reading together in class that so you'll know when people have reached that point. Read to find out where this is taking place. See if you can find out what genre this text is written as. Stop when you know for sure. Maybe you can to explain. Read until you discover whether this is a true story or not. So those are all sort of nice generic prompts and they work. But there's a catch. And that, that catch is that purpose changes significantly in different disciplines. Um, the way you read a science textbook is not the way you read a novel, which is not the way that you read a poem, which is not the way, etc. And I don't know, um, I don't know a better way to illustrate this than to say, consider the following four texts, um, all of which could be encountered in a single day by a, a high school student. So there's a recipe. You read that a certain way. <coughs> Uh, with certain expectations for certain purposes, right? Uh, and if you cook at all, and I like to cook, then you go, well, this isn't too hard to read. And I'm not saying it's that hard to read, but I'm also saying talk to freshman home ec teachers, and apparently it can be amazingly hard to read because it's amazing how kids can butcher it. Okay. Um, so there is something about learning this kind of reading. Um, Then they go off to English class. I'm an English teacher, so I get to share a good poem. Um, so this poem, Stay in Power, by Jean Mary Walker. And think about the set of skills to read this is entirely different than the set of skills <laughs> to read the text that was just up there. An appreciation of Maxim Gorky at the International Convention of Atheists, 1929. Like Gorky, I sometimes follow my doubts outside to the yard and question the sky, longing to have the fight settled, thinking I can't go on like this. And finally I say, all right, it is improbable, all right, there is no God. And then as if I'm focusing a magnifying glass on dry leaves, God blazes up. It's the attention, maybe, to what isn't there that makes the emptiness flare like a forest fire until I have to spend the entire, or spend the afternoon dragging the hose to put the smoldering thing out. Even on an ordinary day, when a friend calls, tells me they found melanoma, complains that the hospital is cold, I whisper, God. God, I say, as my heart turns inside out, and pick up any language by the scruff of its neck, wipe its face, set it down on the lawn, and I bet it will toddle right into the godfire again. 
which, though they say it doesn't exist, can send you straight to the burn unit. Oh, we have only so many words to think with. Say God's not fire. Say anything. Say God's uh, phone, maybe. You know, you didn't order a phone, but there it is. It rings. You don't know who it could be. You don't want to talk, so you pull out the plug. It rings. You smash it with a hammer till it bleeds springs and coils and clobbered up metal bits. It rings again. You pick it up, and the voice you love whispers, Hello. I love that poem. But it's really different than Pasta Budinesca. <laughs> and uh, last time I did this talk, a, a version of it, I had a science teacher um, that I'm familiar with who doesn't hate. He hates poetry, and there's, he's incorrigible, right? And he, he just gave me the, this look like, what kind of idiot are you? That, that's the dumbest I've ever read, right? So it's, and it's, he doesn't kind of get it. It's a different kind of reading than he does. Then I look at this, and now I do feel like an idiot. <laughs> um, so, so that same student, they started at home, then they go to English, and then they go off to chemistry. Determining empirical and molecular formulas of white powder is analyzed and found to contain 43.64% phosphorus and 53.36% oxygen by mass. The compound has a molar mass of 283.88 grams per molecule or mole. Correct, uh, you know, don't correct me, just forgive me. What are the compounds empirical and molecular formulas? Here's the solution, and I'm like done. Because this is a, the different kinds of reading, I'm horrible at this kind. Um, and you've got a combination of text and numbers that's saying something that I don't understand even remotely. And then you go, um, this is from uh, a Jamie Smith book, so we get a little bit of philosophy and this kind of writing I'm fairly comfortable with again, though not everybody is. Uh, so if you look at the top of the page, first sentence, Thus, a pedagogy that thinks about education as primarily a matter of disseminating information tends to assume that human beings are primarily thinking things and cognitive machines. Ideas and concepts are at the heart of such pedagogies because they are aimed primarily at the head. Because of the intellectualist philosophical anthropology that is operative here, the body tends to drop out of the picture. There's little attention to the nitty-gritty details of material practices and the role they play in education. In contrast, a pedagogy that understands education as formation usually assumes that human beings are a different kind of animal. It's not that we don't think, but rather that our thinking and cognition arise from a more fundamental precognitive orientation to the world. Footnote, right? You dropped out. I continue to find it difficult to come up with a lexicon that can address these distinctions in a neat and tidy way, particularly since the same terms mean very different things in different disciplines. And he goes on to, to talk about the struggle with language and philosophy because it's being so careful defining terms which is a different kind of reading again. And that's it for four different kinds of texts. If you look at those four texts and, you just, and then you look at your English teachers, there's more of us, so if there's a rumble here, the English teachers could win, except we tend to be a wimpy bunch. Um, but you know, they, they, they look at English teachers and they go, why don't you teach them to read? And I'm sorry, but if you want me to teach them to read this, you are not going to be happy with the results. Uh, I can try and teach them to read this. Sometimes I do, but it's painful. 
I try to teach the Paul, right? And there's the reading is so different, discipline to discipline. Which is why when we talk about you really have to teach reading in every discipline, that's the truth. That's not an English teacher cop out. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about from this point forward comes from two different um, studies. Uh, this is one of them, reading the disciplines and challenges of adolescent literacy. And they talk about the jump from learning to read to reading to learn is this sort of momentous pivot point happening around middle school. And, um, you know, historically we've put a lot of time and energy into figuring out better ways uh, for kids to learn how to read. But then when we get to that reading to learn, we forget that there's still some stuff they need to learn to read in order to read to learn, and we just, we toss them to the wolves. And they, they flounder. Um, that ladder, reading to learn, brings into play numerous academic concepts and modes of reasoning, different ways of thinking. Adolescents often need more sophisticated, specific kinds of literacy supports for reading in content areas. So we can talk about, right, uh, first to third or fourth grade is basic literacy. You learn to decode and put words together into sentences. Then you get intermediate literacy into middle school. Uh, as we, we sharpen those skills. But then you get to discipline, uh, disciplinary literacy where it becomes highly specialized. And this is one sort of diagram. This is from this, the other uh, main report I'm going to be using material from. Uh, and they said this sort of gets the idea that it becomes more and more specialized, but what you have to realize is it really looks more like this. That you get to the top, and then there's what I do, literary fiction and poetry, which is going to be very different than physical science, which is different than history, which is different than philosophy. And you can't expect you know, one department or one person to teach them all of these things. You read differently in different disciplines. And, and so you've got to start thinking, how does my discipline work? What are the modes of reasoning in my discipline? And how do we, within this discipline, approach reading? And how do I convey that to my students? so that when they read, they have the right sense of purpose. Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, I have AP literature. Um, and I always, one of the things I want to teach kids to do, because good readers do it, is to be analytic, self-analytical, um, a little meditative about their own reading. Um, and so they, they have some summer reading they do, and one of the things that I have them do is talk about, um, they read the Gisara, uh about four-fifths of it on their own. What was easy about reading this? What was difficult for you, and why? Um, and if you know, Victor Hugo likes to sort of, he's a very quantical writer, um, and he can take his time to get to a point. Um, and so a lot, you know, sort of common answer in what's difficult is he just, he uses all these wastes, he wastes all these words, he says it, right, and, and why can't you just, now part is that they don't get how literary fiction works. Even though these are 12th graders, they still don't get it, right? And so a lot of those wasted words, well, they're wasted words. If you think the only point is what happens next, then they certainly are wasted words. Uh, 
And that's one of the things early in the year that I'm starting to try and get them to start thinking about. So an example, the novel ends in a cemetery where you look at Jean Valjean's tombstone, which you have to infer is Jean Valjean's because it, there's no name on it. The action is done. This guy's dead. Everybody's sort of been untied from the plot off to, to live their next story, whatever that is, in some other you know, universe. These, and it's exactly the sort of thing they need to talk about wasted words. But by this point, we've had quite a few talks about uh, symbolism and how to recognize symbols, and some of the kids realize that the last two pages of this, that's why it's there. It's one closing image that is so sort of layered with meaning. It's, it's wonderful. But it's, if you don't get that, then it's useless, pointless writing. It's just Victor Hugo is spinning off words we don't care about, and I wish he'd get to the point. And here are the points behind this. He already got to the point. It's done. But it's because they're not really understanding how this kind of reading works. They're treating it more like a recipe, right? I, it, in some ways. I, I don't need a recipe where, after the recipe, the cook waxes poetic about the meal. Uh, um, although there are some food writers that are fun to listen to them wax poetic about the meal. So, uh, for the, the remaining uh, half hour or so, um, I want to just focus on these two different studies um, and that. Uh, staple pack that I gave you will give you some of this that, uh, on page two, so there will be some duplication between what you're holding and what's up here. It's a little text heavy, right? Uh, PowerPoint's not great for text heavy kind of stuff, and I know that, but I don't also find that in the end, if we're talking about teaching reading, it's hard to do it and not have stuff that we're reading or looking at. Um, so first, we'll talk through some examples from uh, this study, Reading the Disciplines, Channels of Adolescent Literacy. Examples of ways to give students purpose in science, history, and math. Um, if you are an English teacher here, I'll apologize. I'm going to talk the least about that. Um, we can loop around to it at the end, and probably have a little bit of time to talk at the end if we want to. Uh, but I think it's the other disciplines that we tend not to think as much about teaching reading, so I've, I've put more focus on those. Um, so in science, they... Um, in this report, um, they don't exactly talk about it as purpose, the way I've introduced this, but that really is what it comes back to. And so uh, in this report, they talk about the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Back in 93, they had benchmarks for how our students ought to think if they're studying science and that they graduate. Uh, but I think if you look at those benchmarks, and think about that as purpose for reading. It could help frame how you teach reading, what you're asking students to do, rather than just say, read chapter two for tomorrow. Okay. Um, so those benchmarks. What are the functions of the investigation? Uh, to explore, to check previous results, to test the explanatory power of a theory. The functions of the investigation influence how the reader evaluates the evidence presented. I mean, that's a scientific truth about how science is but it also means so you've got different reports. They don't serve the same purpose. 
do you, and so now I'm talking to the handful of you that teach science, right? If I look at a bench like this, do you ever give them reading? And do you make clear to them, well, this is about checking on previous results, or we're testing a theory to see if it holds? Do they get that kind of instruction? Because that, that, that gives me a sense of purpose for why I'm reading it. Which data has been collected? And how has it been analyzed? Is the data appropriate to the questions and conclusions reached? Right, so we're looking over, now we're reading over an experiment, deciding whether the, the data is accurate, whether it shows what the people are saying it shows, and are we given that purpose when we sit down to read? What are the trade-offs of the research design, weighing what we can learn from experiments with controlled conditions versus what we can learn from naturalistic or direct observations? Um, is this the right way to, to try and find the information we're looking for? What are the logical links between data, findings, uh, previous related research, widely accepted theory? And finally, what are potential sources for bias that might influence the findings and recommendations? When I look at you know questions like that last one, I go, if you gave me that, I I was never a great science student. Um, mostly, I was, and that's my own fault. Um, but I do think a question like that, I'd have been all over that. I would have understood what you were asking me to do, and that would have changed how I read a lot of stuff. Um, any of those five, you could turn into assignments that give reading purpose rather than just read this essay, read this chapter, and we'll talk about it. And I take you back to where we started this talk with reading the room. If you have a purpose, a sense of purpose, you read better. And the fact is, when scientists sit down with a journal, they're reading with these sorts of purposes. They know why they're reading. They know what they're looking for. They're not just reading blindly. And again, it's back to the idea that there are certain modes of reasoning, of thought within science that dictate how scientists read. But do we give that to our kids? In history, um, a bit wordy there, and I actually don't even have all of it that I gave you. Um, from, this is a quote out of this report. Viewing primary sources as rhetorical constructions, historians seek to understand the internal states and goals of agents who acted in the historical events. Historians ask about the kind of document it is and how it came into being. They examine word choice and what information is included and excluded. They seek corroboration across multiple sources. They assume such texts have subtext that reflect the author's point of view, access to the experiences about which they write, and how the text is organized to appeal to what audience. In contrast, right, this isn't up here, but it's in the pick. In contrast, schools typically socialize students into seeing history as a simple chronology of events and the explanations of social, political, and economic phenomena offered in text as truthful, a, a truthful and unexamined master narrative. Uh, and I know that that was certainly how I felt in most of my history classes in high school, is just History is just what happened. Not an argument about what happened, not a story that somebody shakes about what happened, it's just what happened. 
right? And your textbook tells you what happened, and your sources memorize dates and names, and you have it, which is not at all how historians work. Um, but if we're really textbook reliant, and all we're doing is giving a textbook, that's the message we're giving kids. That's all history is. Uh, so if you think about this reality for historians and sort of that mode of, of reasoning and thought, uh, this is, again, examples out of this study that I liked, so I just took their examples. I said, so imagine you've got Lincoln's a house-divided speech. You've got a primary source. You give it to kids. How could you get them reading more like historians and give them a better sense of purpose? Well, as they read the text, give them questions like these. What kind of speech is this? I mean, where is he speaking? What's he trying to do? What self-interest might one expect from this kind of speech? Who's the audience? Who's he speaking to when he speaks? How is the text crafted for that particular audience? What words or phrases would have a different meaning or connotation in 1858 than they do now? So that you recognize you're hearing with different ears. <coughs> Bless you. What knowledge is presumed that a listener of that era would already possess? Lincoln knows, of course, my audience is going to know this. But we might not know it. Which again means we hear it with different ears. Are there contradictions or tensions between those presumptions and knowledge from other historical documents about similar <laughs> topics or events? Uh, either within that era, you know, people would say Lincoln is crazy and this is, you know, this is biased what he's presenting, or maybe from a different period that's interesting to lay side by side. America's not the only place that's had a civil war. Uh, what can we infer about Lincoln's motives, his biases? What does he imply about the motives and biases of others, such as Stephen Douglas? And if kids are asking these kinds of questions, they're reading with a sense of purpose. We're back to that. It's not just read this speech and we'll talk about it. And I don't really get, if I'm a kid, what I'm reading the speech for. Now I do. Not only do I get why I'm reading it, you actually have me thinking like a historian. Rather than thinking history is just Lincoln was elected in this year. This wars were in this, this war was in these years. Just, just to clarify, mm -hmm. if you were to, you know, assign House Divided to some students, would you recommend like asking them all of these questions at the onset and saying, here's a whole bunch of different purposes for your reading, try to do them all, or would you say, I want some of you to look at this purpose, I want some I, of you to look at that I would probably purpose. do something more like that and then talk about it, because it's, if you give kids too much, right. um, they're going to get lost. I'm sorry, I'm fighting off a cold and this just came to um, it would be too much. It, it would be, it's not that long a piece. It'd be a great thing to do the, sort of the jigsaw thing. And if you've got three or four, sure. Thank you. For even um, thinking, like, if you have them identify for homework to the audiences, then in class talks about words and phrases of that era and, like, what would the listeners already possess because they're already thinking in that way? I'll break it down in class because that would be more difficult work than assigning. Right. Right. And it might be that on this, on this particular text, 
maybe you won't get to all of these. These are all potential questions you could use. You don't necessarily have to use every one. So you could jigsaw some of it. You could, we're only going to focus on a couple of these things right now, right? Uh, and you have that in every discipline. Um, as I think about literature, right, if I go to my discipline, I don't try to front load um, in September with my AP seniors. I'm not like front loading everything we're going to talk about for the year. So there is there are things in novels that I interested to talk about that we never talk about. And sometimes I'll look back to it later in the year because we introduce a new concept and I'll say, remember back when we read Les Mis in September and we can come back to it, but I'm not going to worry about it the first go-through because you can't do everything all at once. So, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily give them the whole list like this. Um, but they're all ideas that that fit. Um, who would you say uh, the onus is on in terms of discipline to teach the terminology within these questions? So, especially at the middle school level. So, a lot of middle schoolers aren't going to necessarily know what connotation is, or what the different biases are, or the uh, audience. You know. So, is, is that on the history teacher, or should that be more focused on in English class? Both. I mean, that's not me trying to. English teachers, they all learn that word in English class without a doubt, that there's something seriously wrong if they're not hearing that. On the other hand, if I'm a history teacher, um, and I'm not a history teacher, but I have taught a history course, I'm going, oh, come on, what's the big deal? Freaking teaching the word in connotation. It'll take you 30 seconds. <laughs> right? Rather than getting a little spat about who's supposed to be doing it, just sure. do it. It's, um, I think that, uh, yeah. I'm not real territorial. I I teach, but and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to paint you in a box. That's not what I'm saying. The, the context of the question is just you can get as an English teacher. I can see myself getting bogged down in the lesson, just going over some of these, you know, these terms, and not even be able to get to the text itself. In so, the meat of it. But which would go back to the other question to say then tackle one or two questions right, at a time. time, right? If you think if you picture if I'm a history teacher, I'm doing this all year long that I try every week to get primary text in front of kids at one point or another. If I have to introduce connotation early, well, once I've introduced it once, we don't have to work as much on that, so now we they, they know that the next time. So. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Math. Um, and I, I... The reason I have this double-edged sword I'm going to put up here... Um, and it's not because I'd like to throw myself on it, although sometimes I felt that way doing pre-calc when I was in high school. Math is weird in that if you're really good at it, people who are really good at it, I'm trying to, do we have any math teachers in here? One. Go. You've got to be able to do both of these things. And they're opposites. Right? So students need to, be able to situate problems in real-world context. Right? I have to be able to get how this ties to... Um, uh, story problems is sort of the classic example, right? When kids, um, it's uh, there was a state test. This is in the book Understanding by Design. They talk about it. Um, it was a state test for high school sophomores or juniors, all of whom, you know, are, are the vast majority of them have had geometry. They all know the quadratic equation. There's a story problem. You do. It's pretty clear. You use quadratic equation to solve it. And a remarkable number of kids get it wrong. 
right? It's because they can't situate a problem as soon as you go to a real world context, they don't. If you told them, use a quadratic equation to solve this, 90% of them get it right. But when you're not there to tell them that, they can't tie it to something in real life. They don't see that connection. So you have to be able to do this. But they must also be able to engage the decontextualized nature of mathematics where the logic of reasoning from postulates to theorems and such mathematical proofs and about multiple theorems is normally expected. In other words, you've got to be able to think, right? And if you think about math, uh, and if you don't think math, think like Russell Crowe, a beautiful mind, is that the, right? You've got the, the borders full of problems and stuff, right? That's so abstract, right? But that's really, really good mathematicians. They go completely abstract. Numbers are abstract and they're fine. But if they really get it, they can also tie the abstract to something concrete. And you have to be able, if you're going to be successful in math, you have to be able to do both. And that's why I'm saying sort of a double-edged sword. It's kind of, you're being pulled in two different directions. I've got to teach you to be really abstract, and I have to teach you to be able to make that really concrete. So I'm glad I don't teach you math. <laughs> um, so... Um, in this study that we're working through here, uh, they list possible categories of reading practices in an inquiry-oriented, inquiry-oriented mathematics classroom. This is from a study in Rochester, New York. Um, and I'll say that perhaps in math I'm uh, getting pretty far out of my comfort zone, so um, I offer all this perhaps a big grain of salt. Um, reading to make things public. Uh, and again, up here I'm going to give you just the category, so it goes out of category two, but on the handout that I gave you, um, you get more out of this that came out of the study in Rochester. Uh, so we can read to value students' meanings or to convey meaning. We can read to get feedback. We can read to make a presentation. We can read to demonstrate our thinking, to, to have that... Um, so uh, it's the, the way that idea of reading to make public, I think, is the idea that it's here and reading it helps bring it forward. I was a little foggy on what they meant by that one, to be honest. Um, the, the next four make more sense to me. Reading to comprehend. Uh, read generatively to make sense of a text. Sometimes we read to understand and follow directions on how to approach a certain kind of problem. Sometimes we read to make a decision. Should he do it this way or this way, and why? Sometimes we read to make sense of graphic or visual art. Sometimes we read to extract specific information within this text. Reading to find an example. Uh, read to learn how to do something the text does, or read to find an example of something. Um, category four. Reading to generate something new. Uh, read to generate a reflective written response, or read to push an idea further, or read to spark a new idea, or read to set the stages for the next activity, or read in order to revise a text or revise an idea, your understanding of something. Um, all of those, again, I'm not a math teacher. I'm thinking of, and it's a long time ago that I was in math classes, but the way I remember textbooks for math classes is we didn't use them. We used them for practice problems. I learned math in class. And then you did problems that were in the book. Nobody read the textbook. Now, I don't know if that's changed or not. Um, 
but when I look at some of these examples that we were just talking about, I go, I understand that would be a way to use the text. Read until you find an example, or read to find. Uh, you know, we talked about this, but maybe there's a different alternate way. Read to find the alternate way and be able to explain. Um, I can say that any of those would have helped me read a book. I mean, there's a, I think there's a reason that we don't tend to assign math textbooks. They're not very interested to read, and they're, they don't easily lend themselves a purpose. Um, any of these sort of narrowed would make it easier to read. Um, category five, reading to remember. You read to copy notes. Sometimes you read reflective statements to value something, why this matters or, or what it can do for you. Um, and like I said, that the math stuff is wandering a long ways from my strengths, so that I have a lot more to say. Other than I do like the idea of giving kids a better sense of purpose than just read chapter two. Uh, the other report um, is this one that I'd like to talk about. Like teaching disciplinary literacy to adolescents, rethinking content area literacy. Um, and in this study, they did three things. Um, they worked with experts. So they went to um, colleges and universities, PhD level people, to talk to experts in the field about how they read. Stop and think. You're, you are a physicist. You have your PhD in physics. How do you read? What does it mean when you sit down and read? Um, you're uh, a historian with a PhD. They, they talked to experts in their field. Um, so this was not about in a classroom. This is let's talk to professionals and try and figure out what they're actually doing. They noted how those methods reflected how scholarship is done within that discipline because the different disciplines read differently. And then they created and they test drove strategies for students within different disciplines. So they had, um, so they were talking with uh, PhD professionals, and then they worked with high school teachers and high school students. So it's first we're going to try and define what it means to read as a historian or as a scientist. Then we're going to work with high school teachers and say, if that's what it is, can we come up with some sort of method that would help to teach kids to do that? And then they actually tested some of these. And that then follows uh, on the next page in your handout there. Oops, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and this is so text-heavy that I think it's easier to just all look at this together. Um, so if you look across the way I laid this chart out, you've got math, chemistry, and history are the professionals that they worked with. Um, so the... the First row, then, is notes from experts in the field on how they read. So since we were just talking about math, we'll stick with that. This is what a professional mathematician said. Uh, they emphasize close reading and rereading. The has a very different meaning than a, he explained. Students often attempt to read mathematics text for the gist or the general idea, but this kind of text cannot be understood appropriately, I'm sorry, cannot be appropriately understood without close reading. Math reading requires a precision of meaning, and each word must be understood specifically in service to that particular meaning. In fact, the other mathematician noted that it sometimes took years of rereading for him to completely understand a particular proof. So, there's an interesting 
dichotomy there for these professionals going, to read like mathematician is to read and read, and it's so, so, so particular, and you've got kids who are just trying to get the general idea. And you've got mathematicians, that's not at all how it works, ever. And go, well, no wonder kids don't read it very successfully then. Um, so if you go down, drop down to the next row, um, each method of reading reflects how scholarship is done with that discipline. So what does it say about math? The mathematicians we studied were theoretical rather than applied mathematicians. In their field, errorless proofs are by their very nature true, and the purpose of their work is to create these proofs, hence to create truth. Because proofs must be error-free, they are read carefully in order to discover any possible error. Every word uh, matters, and rereading is essential. So what did that mean for a strategy that you could use with students? What did they come up with? Their strategy here um, was structured note-taking. So they asked students to do this while reading math texts. Uh, students wrote the mathematics big idea that's being studied in the first column. In the next column, they would write the explanation of the big idea. And in the following columns, they provided an example. Showed a formula, made a graph or a diagram, or otherwise illustrated the big idea. They were to complete that work as they read and then use it as a study guide part of a unit test. So it was a particular kind of note making, trying to get them to go from the, the big to the particular, so that they'd start noticing the particular. Um, if you go back to the top with the chemistry teacher, an example of science. Reading emphasized transformation of information from one idea to another, going back and forth between prose, formulas, and charts to understand. And I think that's true. If you think of that chemistry text we just had up here, one page of a textbook, right? Chemistry works that way. You want to visualize it so you've got text, and then you've got a diagram or a drawing, and you bounce back and forth. And that same science teacher that was kind of poking fun of with the poem was nodding at this point. Oh, yeah, that's exact scientists. They don't read the straight. They're bouncing back and forth, they look at the diagram, then they look back at the text, and then they look back at the diagram, and then that's how that kind of reading works. Um, whereas, right, this is, uh, I know I'm off a little bit here, but if you think about lit textbooks, right, I go to English for the, all the English teachers here, what do the pictures in a literature textbook mean? Absolutely nothing, they're decoration. In fact, they sometimes annoy me, at least, because kids get distracted. I thought he had brown hair. That's just a painting they paint. It's got nothing to do with anything. Right? Stop looking. And so, do you get, again, there's kids reading differently. I'm going to just ignore the pictures. And in science, do not ignore the pictures. You better be bouncing over the pictures frequently. Um, this is from a chemist. Uh, they give you the structure. The structure of the sensor is given. So I was looking at the picture as I was reading, and I was trying to relate what was in the picture to what they were saying about how mercury binds to one part of the molecule. This explanation, corroborated by the chemist's other comments, helped us understand that in chemistry, different or alternative representations, for example, pictures, graphs, charts, text, diagrams of an idea are essential for a full understanding of the concept. Um, so that's what they had from talking to the experts. Then um, what does that mean about the method of reading? Chemists create knowledge through experimentation. What was important to them in reading, consequently, was a full understanding of the way an experiment took place and the processes that it uncovered. Gaining that full understanding required them to think about the phenomenon being presented in prose, to visualize it, 
and to manipulate it in formulas and equations. So for them, it also led to a structured kind of note-taking with a little bit different structure. So they tried this method with students that students take notes in a chart format. Each section of the chart reflects the information that the chemistry specialist indicated would comprise an essential reading of chemistry text. The chart requires students to summarize substances, their atomic expressions, properties, processes, and interactions. And so they're reproducing text and drawings and numbers, which is exactly what these chemists said. That's how you read chemistry. You've got to bounce back and forth. So the note taking is forcing them to bounce back and forth. Yeah. And then finally, they taught to history uh, historians. And what they discovered there is reading emphasized um, points of view and inherent biases. Story, history is not truth, but a version of events. Uh, and then the words of a historian, I saw, oh, I don't know him, this author, very well, but he's part of a right-wing group of Southern conservatives who is a secessionist. Now, I'm not sure that that's the best model for thinking about Lincoln as a president as one that comes from a racist. So I have my critical eyes up a little bit, so it's a bit of a stretch to be friendly to, so I wanted to make sure to read it fairly. And the point is that he reads with the view in which both the author and the reader are available in position. Right? So I'm... I recognize the source as being racist, but I also recognize that that might mean I'm too quick to dismiss them. And so you're, boy, that's a long ways from the textbook just tells me what happened. Uh, historians rely on the analysis of primary sources, not just to find facts, but to interpret them, considering point of view is critical. So what did that mean for students? Um, their method, they used a chart like this. As students reading about events, they record the who, what, where, uh, why, and how of that event. They do the same for each event. And then they determine the relationship between the first and the second event, the second and the third, and so on. Like historians, students must infer the cause and effect relationships of history. Um, and so they, they're creating a chart and asking them to find these links as they record them. Okay? Um, so that's from that study. Uh, if you, If you do a search on reading with purpose, um, it's kind of interesting because you find a lot of generic stuff, you don't find a lot of disciplinary specific stuff. I don't know why, because of what we already said, it is so different from discipline to discipline. My goal this morning was to sort of peek your thoughts a little bit, because I don't know your disciplines, but to start thinking about, in my discipline, what do we do and what do we do differently? And how could I reflect that in assignments I give the kids that get them reading with a greater sense of purpose? So if I quick wrap up what we've gone through, students read better when they have a clear sense of purpose. It's pretty straightforward. But purpose varies from discipline to discipline, and because purpose varies, our approach to reading varies. Students need training to discover purpose and approach to reading in each discipline if they're to learn it, and they have to do it routinely. I, I didn't emphasize that, but if this is a one-off, you're wasting your time. Uh, so I, I'm a, a science teacher, I'm going to come up with one assignment that does something like this, and then I'm done. But don't bother doing the one. Uh, if you don't do it regularly, if I'm a, history, uh, a history teacher, and I'm going to give them one primary source per semester, I don't see the point in giving them any. 
you're not going to teach them to read a good story. It has to be something that's routine that they practice. And to do it well, then we need to reflect on our own practices within the discipline. And again, that's I don't claim to be a math teacher or a chemistry teacher or a physics teacher. In fact, I claim that's a good thing I'm not. Um, but you need to think about what it is that you do. And how do I teach that to kids? You can't just expect them to, to know it. And I take you back, I do think when you put four different kinds of text next to each other like that, that's really eye-opening. And that's a kid moving through their day. And for you to just expect them to be able to read chemistry because they learned to read a long time ago is really unfair. Um, chemistry gets read differently than philosophy. It gets read differently than history. It gets read differently than a novel. Um, and so what, how do we do it and how do we create assignments that show them how to do it? Um, I don't know if there's questions or comments. I don't necessarily have answers, but others might. I just have a quick question on some of the reading gurus. You know, it's been a long time, but the last time I took a course on reading was Vaka and Vaka content area reading. Um, do you have any good ideas of where to start? I, I did take down the name of uh, the, uh, falling, the Fallen Reader, whatever. Okay. Uh, the Shanahan and Shanahan. Uh, I pray the question too. Other than that, I'm going to back off because I said I'm not claiming to be okay. Right. I was just thinking like Mortimer Adler with his book, the Reader Book. He also advocates coaching, and just that model would be so interesting. To like, uh, like we're going to talk in the Bible instruction hour about the Bible being read aloud, but actually learning to annotate. The teachers circulating, helping them learn how to mark questions, themes. You know, what kind of literature or genre is this? I, I haven't practiced a lot myself, but just that coaching model. I wonder if it. We give ideas on how to actually watch them read and, you know, over the shoulder kind of. Right. Well, I think, I, I think so. And it's a, something like annotation differs in disciplines too, right? But, but that's where I think we, we don't recognize. Teachers will try to do the kind of thing I'm talking about. They'll say, so when you read, I want you to annotate the text. That's not what no, that means. No, yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll mark it up. And watch what they mark. Sometimes they underline everything, you know. Right. Because the more you highlight, the better you must be. You're smarter. I'm really afraid I got everything highlighted, which means you have nothing highlighted. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're not going to learn that. And again, what you highlight in one class might be really different from what you highlight in a different kind of class. And they're not going to just magically pick that up from nowhere. I just want to thank you because, um, I mean, I don't teach at that level. I teach elementary, but because of that, I teach many different disciplines in the course of the day to the same group of kids. And so even just having, like, an early, providing them an early understanding, you know, of, hey, we're going to read this very differently than we read, you know, during our language arts time. And so I appreciate that. It was helpful to think through. Well, thank you. I do, I do think it's, when you stop to think about how different it is, it's, I had fun finding the four texts I put together, but I just went, oh. Yeah. To me, that doesn't even put in the bed eye-opening. To really stop and think about walking through a day, and I spend all this time in history, and then I walk into psychology, and then I walk into chemistry, and then I walk into a novel, and boy, is that different kind of stuff. So. Okay. Just one quick comment, I don't even know if this, is gonna, this has to do more with writing. 
Uh, when I was in graduate school, I had my advisor was an up-and-coming professor who did wind up at Yale. And he wanted to be a writer and he wanted to be successful. But his learn his way of learning to write, he would go down into the library's basement and he would read how other disciplines wrote. And he tried to get different ideas on how to be a good writer by reading. Now it's kind of a reverse, but it's just, but it's playing off the same right. thing. It's the it's the same concept. It's different, right? And he did come pretty well known. So it worked. Thank you.